message. All right, that's what we've got for announcements. And now on to Acts chapter 8. So as you make your way direction, let me just remind you where we have been up to this point. What we saw really is this message really began to take place and take shape at the beginning of chapter 6. And what was happening is there was a problem occurring in the early church. They had widows that weren't being well taken care of, or at least that was the perception. And so what the apostles did is they appointed seven men, seven God-fearing men full of the Holy Spirit, and they appointed them essentially what are the first deacons in the church. And so they appointed these seven men to take care of, to assist these widows, in particular with meal services. And so these men were actually glorified waiters there to take care of these widows in the early church. And what we found is they didn't just stay in that spot, but actually as they grew in faithfulness to what God called them to, he gave them more faith and more ministry opportunities. In fact, when we were looking there in chapter 6, one thing that stuck out to us about Stephen in particular was that it was said of him that he was full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. And so as he grew in faith, God actually gave him uh, even more responsibility, more uh, power, and so he was able to perform some of these same miracles that the apostles were even doing. And so all this because he was uh, determined to be faithful in his calling. Now, this led us to chapter 7 where we were. And what we saw is Stephen actually giving an impassioned speech there before the Sanhedrin. He had drawn the attention as he taught people about Jesus Christ of these uh, Jewish council that ruled over the people from a religious standpoint. And he gave this passionate address. Essentially, uh, what he addressed was the issue at hand, and that was that they knew God, but they, didn't, they knew about God, but they did not know God. They had rules and religion and practice in place, but they had no relationship with the true and living God. And that relationship can only happen through his son, through Jesus Christ. And so that's ultimately the point of Stephen's message. He wanted to unveil for them, not in anger, but in love, that they did not know God because they knew not Jesus. And so he lays out this uh, passionate message, and the result, because all they had was religion, is they, they answered in violence. They answered in anger, and Stephen, at the end of our time in chapter 7, becomes the first martyr, the first one to die for his faith in the New Testament church. And so they were hopeful that this would actually stop this movement of Christianity, and instead, where we're going to arrive today is we're going to look at uh, three different characters as the message of Christ is going to continue to go forth. We're going to look at, as I have titled the message, the good, the bad, and the ugly. A little homage to Daniel, who was speaking to us on Friday night as he mentioned his favorite actor, East Clintwood. There we have a little good, bad, and the ugly. And we're going to see the good in the life of Philip, uh, the bad in Simon the sorcerer, and the, the downright ugly in Saul of Tarsus. So with that said, let's begin in chapter 8, verse 1. And now Saul was consenting to his death. He's speaking there of Stephen, the death of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so what we see is that at the beginning, Saul was consenting, or the word could also be approving of the death of Stephen. And so when we make comment that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, that it would only be these members that would consent to an execution. And so as we read here, Saul was one of these members of this Jewish council that agreed, that approved of the death of Stephen. And, and thinking about this, 
of Saul of Tarsus, uh, agreeing to, approving to the death of Stephen. It's amazing to see his transition, which we're going to get into over the next several weeks because you know that Saul of Tarsus would become the Apostle Paul. That even in uh, his own words, as he reflects back upon his time and how he was as a person, as a man, what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer a per- and an insolent man. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a murderer, is in fact who the Apostle Paul was in his previous life. But the key there is that's who he was. <laughs> that is not who he continued to be. And so he became a new creation in Christ. And I want to just share that because if you feel like there's anything that holds you back whatsoever, there's something from your past that even God can't get past, I want to encourage you to look at the life of the Apostle Paul because he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, and yet what he said is all these things were the former. And he did them ignorantly because he did not have knowledge of God. He was a well-educated man, and yet he was an ignorant man because uh, truth and wisdom all begin in Christ himself. So Paul's desire, or Saul as he's known at this point in time, is to actually stamp out this Christian faith. But what you know, because you've been around campfires, is what happens when you begin to try to stamp out a campfire is that the embers spread and go everywhere. And the reality is most forest fires actually begin, here's a little public safety announcement for you, most forest fires begin from embers, right? The, the embers spread, and then the fire spreads even further. And, and what we also see here in verse 1 is that they were all scattered throughout the Judea and Samaria. What did Jesus tell them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But he said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He gave them very clear instructions where they were to go, But you know what the early church didn't do? Go. They didn't go anywhere. They stayed put right there in Jerusalem. Why? Because it was comfortable. It was nice to be around their friends. They'd managed to develop a little holy huddle. They weren't trying to do bad, but it was scary in the world out there. They were having a way better time praising the Lord and, 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 you know, proclaiming his name, but managing to stay very safe at the same time. And so what we find is, Uh, God allows persecution to take place so that they will go. God, by the way, this is a part of his character we need to understand, is that he will never force you to do anything. He is a gentleman. He will not force you to accept him. He will not force you to obey him. But what he will do is limit your options. (laughs) And that's very much what we see. He will do what I call uh, the, the godly full Nelson, right? Anybody ever been put in a full Nelson? There's not... Much else. You don't have to tap out, but you're going to be stuck in the full Nelson. And so what we see is God allowing a full Nelson to happen in the lives of these men, but understanding at the same time it's not for punishment. It's actually for the good news to go forth and for the disciples themselves. God has their best in mind. He knows precisely what's best for his word to go forth. And the same is true in our life, that oftentimes things will happen, and we are sure, we are certain that these things are awful. This is the worst it's ever been. And I think back to even being called uh, here and the opportunity I had to come back here, uh, that if God hadn't put things in my life to make me very uncomfortable, we wouldn't have left. We had things going pretty well. We had a, a nice home. We're living in a beautiful community, assistant pastor at a church. 
you know, things looked like they were going very well. And yet what God allowed in my life was a complete disruption in our business that up to that point was doing very well as well. And so he allowed that into my life to make it clear that it was time to leave this place. And so he can do this uh, in our lives as well because oftentimes what happens is we want to just stay put and stay in the comfortable and, and lots of times there's just a little bit of pride in that, right? I'll, I'll admit that when a business has your name on it, on the side, there's a tremendous amount of pride. It doesn't make it bad, but for me, what the Lord knew is it was going to be very difficult to step away. And so he allowed discomfort as he does in our lives uh, often. And so the question is, what is he doing? What is he making you uncomfortable in that he desires to actually move in your life? Now, what we also note at the end of verse 1 here, and I promise we are going to get to all 40 verses today, is that uh, all the disciples were scattered except the apostles. Now, isn't that interesting? That the disciples were scattered, but the apostles actually stayed put. But the word apostle, you might know, means sent one that the word actually means that they were to be sent forth, and yet what God didn't do was send them forth. They stayed there in Jerusalem. And I find that fascinating because if you recall the trial of Christ, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26 was going to take place was this. He said that all will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so the apostles were actually scattered at the trial of Jesus in fear. And so now what we see is the disciples are scattered, not in fear, but to go take the gospel message, and the apostles are encouraged to stay to show we are not afraid of what might happen to us. In fact, out of confidence now, they're able to stay right there in Jerusalem in the face of persecution. And so you see the change that's happened in these men's life because of the power of of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and make great lamentation over him. And so devout men, this actually doesn't mean Christians. He's speaking to devout Jewish believers. They hadn't even converted to Christianity, and yet because they'd seen this powerful testimony of Stephen, they had been moved, is what we find in, at the end of uh, verse 2, they make great lamentation. They mourned over Stephen because they knew what was happening was not right. And so I want to encourage you in your testimony that people are always watching. You can have profound effect even if the people don't initially come to know Christ. Now, verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And so the word that we have here is that Saul made havoc. The word havoc actually is related to a wild hog. If you've ever seen a YouTube video of a wild hog, or maybe you've experienced it personally, is that when they are injured and feel like they're backed into a corner, they go absolutely insane. They do not care for their own person. They just go completely bananas, totally off the rails. And this is the word that's used for Saul, that he went completely insane. And this is a guy who, at the death of Stephen, uh, I believe, was injured deeply in his soul. He knew somewhere deep down that this thing was not right, and yet he acted like an animal that had been released. He went after families, and this was a man who was refined. He was cultured. If you read his writings, his Greek, it is obvious that he was well-educated. 
He was trained under Gamaliel, the teacher of teachers there in Israel. And so he went insane. In fact, this is why God tells him in Acts chapter 9, the next chapter we're going to get to, that Saul, Saul, wasn't it hard to kick against the goads? He was literally being directed, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit to go the direction of Christ, and yet he was kicking against it. I can relate to that just a little bit. It's difficult to kick against the goads. Now, verse 4, we see is that in spite of Saul's best efforts, that therefore those who scattered went everywhere preaching the word. (laughs) He desired to stop the word from going forth, and yet there is no stopping the word of God when he has inhabited his people. And so they went preaching everywhere they went. And we're going to be introduced to one of those preachers here in verse 5. And then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out in a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in the city. And so Philip, and he is called to an interesting place, a Samaria. Now to us, we read through that and go, well, he was called to Samaria, called to a different town. That doesn't sound like a big deal. That's because you're not Jewish. <laughs> that the Jews would call the Samaritans. In fact, the way they would pray in the synagogues often, they would say, thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman or a Samaritan dog. That's how they would pray about the Samaritans. And the the reason being is that they were considered a less than people. And and this goes all the way back into the Old Testament. So here's your time, a little Old Testament history lesson, that when you go back to the book of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, what you find is after the reign of Solomon, something very interesting took place, and that is the kingdom was split into two. Solomon was told because of his sin, the kingdom would actually be taken from him. And so half the kingdom went with his son, Rehoboam. That would be the tribes of, actually only two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the other ten tribes followed a guy named Jeroboam. And they were considered in our Old Testament as Israel. And so now you have two nations. You have the nation of Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Now Israel, throughout their history, Uh, In our Old Testament, we find is that 20 kings are recorded in Israel's history, and they had exactly zero good guys. They had all bad kings of Israel. One of the worst of those guys was a guy named Ahab, who had a wife named Jezebel, and these are the the king and queen that uh, Elijah the prophet called down fire there on the prophets of Baal. So it gives you a little bit of context to what's taken place. This northern kingdom had gone completely off the rails, so much so that in 722 B.C., as Isaiah had prophesied would take place, the nation of Israel was taken away by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came down, and they ransacked Israel, and they took them into captivity. And this is a a horrific event because there were hardly any people in history worse than the Assyrians. In fact, when the Assyrians would come in to invade, most populations would do two things. Uh, They would either run and get out of town, or they would actually commit mass suicide just so they wouldn't have to be uh, taken captive by the Assyrians, who some of their favorite pastimes included uh, stripping their captives naked and then uh, putting fish hooks in their cheeks and daisy-chaining them together while they led them into captivity. Now, if they didn't like to do that, they would just uh, take them and skin them alive and make furniture out of them. So a particularly nasty 
group of people. And now you begin to understand why the Assyrians were so awful. But one of the things they did in order to stop a revolt from people uh, from taking place is they would bring in some of the other nations that they had captured, they bring them into the land and have them uh, cross-pollinate, if you will, with the native people. They would essentially breed out your culture, breed out your cultural identity. Because if you didn't have any identity, you wouldn't rise up against Assyria. And this is where the Samaritan people come into play. The Samaritans were essentially half-breeds in the eyes of the Israelites, in the eyes of the Jewish people. They were less than. Now, this is who, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, he says in John chapter 4, I must needs go to Samaria. He said, I must pass through Samaria. Now, any good Jewish uh, man or woman would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody needs to go through Samaria. That's some rough parts there in the middle of Israel. In fact, it was so rough that what they would do is to get from Galilee down to Jerusalem, they would cross the Jordan River, go through what is now modern day the nation of Jordan, and then cross back over the Jordan uh, by way of Jericho just to avoid Samaria. They would go way out of their way, and here's Jesus, and he says, I must go through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment with a woman at a well. And the, the message of the Savior, the message of the Messiah would go forth from this very woman that he wanted to seek out. He wanted the message to go to Samaria. Now later in Jesus' ministry, they would pass through Samaria again, and he would send James and John to try to find safe passage and to secure a place for them to stay at night. And instead, what the Samaritans did is they rejected Jesus at that time. And so much so, and they were so insulted that James and John came back to Jesus and said, Lord, do you want us to just call down fire from heaven on them? Right? Thinking back to the story of Elijah, Lord, let's just smoke them. They aren't accepting us. Let's call down fire. And Jesus said, you don't even know what kind of spirit you are. You don't even understand my ministry. I came to save, not to destroy. And so he proceeded to give James and John a nickname. You guys are now the sons of thunder. Calling down fire on people. I love that Jesus gave people nicknames. By the way, it makes me so happy. So he said, you guys are just the sons of thunder trying to call down fire. But what we see is that over and over again, what God is trying to do, even through this story with Philip, where does he send Philip? Samaria. Over and over and over again, the Lord is trying to put people in place so that they might be saved. And as much as I shared with you there, do you understand how many times, thinking back to your life, God put people in place for you? Over and over in your path, people have been placed in just a certain area at just the right time so that you might come to know the Lord. That's how much he loves you. He loves you enough to send a Philip, a bunch of Samaritans who didn't deserve it, but that's how much he loved them. He so loved the world. Now, continuing on from there, in verse 9, and there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they had all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. And so now we're introduced to Simon the sorcerer, or Simon the magician, or perhaps 
maybe even Simon the demon-possessed. That what we see is the first group that Philip actually speaks to back in the previous verse, verse 7, that he uh, unclean spirits, excuse me, verse 6, the multitudes came to him with one accord, heeding what was spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles he did, and unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And so one of those was most likely Simon the sorcerer, who was able to do these things through the power of the demonic, and yet he was delivered. He had an exorcism place. Now, for most of us, uh, this is kind of be to think about demon possession. And, and in fact, so often we think there's no demon possession anymore, right? That's Old Testament stuff. Yet here we are, New Testament church. There's still demon possession that very much takes place. I think oftentimes in our society right now, we uh, sign off to it and say it's, it's psychiatric. It's a mental disturbance. Uh, they've got a disconnect somewhere. But oftentimes what it really is, it, it is demonic. You look in the paper at some of these atrocities that take place at the mugshots, and what do you see in someone's eyes when they're having the picture taken? You, you can see uh, really a demonic force that takes over someone's life. This is where Simon was, and yet he had been delivered. Now, while that creeps us out, oftentimes I want to encourage you that if the Holy Spirit is in you, you can no longer be possessed by a demon. That he will not take up inhabitants in a vessel that has a demonic presence. And so, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, what John says in 1 John chapter 4, 4, is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Now, it does not mean that we cannot be oppressed by the demonic. That Satan is all the time trying to oppress us and mess with us in many kind of ways and spiritual attacks, but he cannot possess you if Jesus is in you. Now, verse 13, Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And so what we see is Simon has been delivered, and now he believes. And yet, as I started the message, what did I say? That Simon was a, a bad guy. Well, how is that possible? If he believes, how is he still going to have issues and get rebuked like we're going to see here in just a few minutes when we continue on in the story? And the issue lies in this. Um, James chapter 2, verse 19, uh, James makes this very clear statement. He says uh, here that you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. You see, the reality about belief is, is there is a difference between believing in your head and believing in your heart. That in fact, the distance between heaven and hell for many people is about 18 inches. It's from right here to right here. That we can spend all of our time keeping God only up here and never allowing him to actually exist in our hearts. That what the word says is that faith comes by sight. No, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That we want to see miracles and we want to see God up to things and yet what he's saying is I want to actually... I want you to hear my words and let them sink down deep into your heart. And then what takes place is the heart makes a convert of the mind. It's not the mind making a convert of the heart. It's the heart. It's that belief that actually converts my mind. And if you don't believe me, I'd like you to do this. A very simple exercise. I would like you to just look around the room. Just look around. It's okay. Just look around. What you're going to see as you look around the room are some very 
beautiful ladies. And you are sitting next to some hideous men. I mean, these dudes are ugly. There is no reason why at all that these women should have married us. And by the way, I'm saying this as a four and a half that married a ten. Okay? Let's just call a spade a spade. That's what it is. But what happens is the heart makes a convert of the mind. She saw something in you that probably wasn't actually there, at least not by the way I'm looking at things, right? But the heart made a convert of the mind. And so we know this to be true, and the same thing is true with our spirituality, that the heart, this belief, actually makes a convert of the mind. And that's what separates a believer from a non-believer, one who believes as a demon would versus one who knows deep down in our heart who God is. Now, verse 14. Apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them and they, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as of yet, he had not fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so what we see is this great revival's taking place in Samaria. And so hearing this, the apostles in Jerusalem send Peter and John down because they had received in them, that's the Greek preposition. Remember, there are three experiences we can have with the Holy Spirit. The first in the Greek is para. That means alongside. That exists for all people that live and breathe at some point in their life until they finally just rejected him, that he leaves them alone. We all have a para, alongside experience with the Holy Spirit, where he is directing, trying to point us back to our need of a Savior. We need Jesus. That's that voice that speaks to our conscience, that points to him. Then once we receive and accept him, this salvation moment, he comes in us. The preposition is the word en. He comes inside us at the point of salvation. Now we have Jesus living in us. And yet, the third relationship, this is the powerful, dynamic relationship. Jesus called it dunamos, dynamite power, that he preposition that's used where he comes upon us. This is where we can be empowered to make disciples, to share our testimony. And then people around us begin to believe in Jesus because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is the relationship that they had not yet received. And yet you have to ask, why? Did they not receive this power of the Holy Spirit? Why did Peter and John uh, come down? And I'll submit to you that I don't know the answer exactly, other than to say that different people have different giftings. Apparently, for Peter and John, they had the gifting of being able to lay hands on people, and they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. For uh, Philip, he had the gift of evangelism. We see that evangelistic gift being uh, taken hold of. And what you find in the body of Christ with that is that many of us have different giftings, that we have different, uh, we have different ways that the Spirit manifests itself in our life, and we're able to actually go out and do things using, exercising our different gifts. Some of you may, like we saw Friday night with Daniel, have the gift of evangelism. I hope that you do. I do not. <laughs> You're shaking your head. You're like, yeah, we noticed. Uh, sometimes I have a little bit of the gift But for the most part, the the way the Lord gifted me was in teaching. Now, there are several of you who have the gift of hospitality. 
You have the ability to welcome people in, to, be, to have them in your home, to be hospitable here. It's a wonderful gift. Exercise that gift. It's needed in the body of Christ. Maybe you have the gift of helps. You have the ability to go in and help people in a time of need. Understand that at each step with these gifts, you are still being the hands and feet of Jesus. And it's necessary for every body part to function, to have a well-functioning body of Christ. And so here we see for Peter and John, they're able to come to Samaria and lay hands on these people, and they actually receive the power of the Holy Spirit. I think there's one other reason why, though, outside of that, that Peter and John were called, and that is, what was John known as but a son of thunder? The last time he was in Samaria, he was ready to call down fire on people. And what does God do in his life? but he changes him from the inside out. The son of thunder actually becomes the apostle of love. That's what John is known as through the rest of the Old Testament. And now the man who wanted to call down fire gets to lay his hands upon people and they actually receive the fire of the Holy Spirit. You see, it comes full circle for John. You can imagine how moved he was as he begins to call down fire this time for the purposes of salvation, not for destruction. Now, Continuing on. And when Simon saw that through on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But verse 20, Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray, uh, pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And then Simon answered in verse 24 and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. And so we see here Simon, uh, the former sorcerer, now wants to receive the power to be able to lay his hands upon people. He essentially wants to buy a magic trick. That's the way he viewed this because in his mind, he saw this unbelievable uh, trick, this ability, and he's thinking, I can be really popular with this. I could probably monetize this thing. And just like what is done even today, if you're a magician and you've got a fabulous trick, other magicians will actually try to purchase it from you. But the issue here for Simon uh, is uh, threefold. Uh, first of all, he had a wrong view of himself. The way he looked at himself is oftentimes how we can be, and, and that is this, um, that inside, I'm a really good guy, right? Like, we, we have this view, this worldview that, that we are all pretty good people, we just need some good direction. And, and the, the sad part about that uh, viewpoint, that worldview, is that it's not scriptural, that, in fact, what Isaiah says is that none of us are righteous. No, not one. And, in fact, our righteousness is as filthy rags. That on my best day, my righteousness that I have to offer outside of Christ inhabiting me, it's filth. And so, to, to be a successful Christian, if that is even the right terminology, what we have to start with is having a correct view of myself. That is that of my own good, I have no righteousness outside of Christ. And so this is, this is who we are. Simon doesn't have that 
viewpoint. Instead, he would prescribe to more of the, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Your own self-worth, you can generate it. And that is such a load of crud, right? We have this idea that anything you can dream, you can do. But the reality is, I can go out here and dream all I want about dunking a basketball. I'm a 5'11", 42-year-old white dude. I ain't dunking a basketball. No matter how much I believe and try, you can receive it. It's not true. Not in my own strength. Now, if Christ wants me to dunk, better. Michael Jordan, here I come, right? But this is the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The second viewpoint he had that was wrong was that of the Holy Spirit. He looked at the Holy Spirit, and what he wanted to do was have the power, but he wanted to bribe God for it. Now, we look at this story and think, well, I would never bribe God to try to receive the Holy Spirit. But then when I was thinking about this this week, I wonder how many times I've tried to bribe God. And I was shocked as I started to think back at how many promises I had made, how many times I'd said, Lord, if you just let me do this, or if you just let me off the hook for that, I'll serve you. I'll do anything you'd have me to do. How many times I spent on the bathroom floor saying, Lord, if you just help me to feel better, I'll do anything just so I don't feel like this again. And so we oftentimes are in this position where we're like Monty Hall. Let's make a deal, Lord. Any place you want me to go, as long as you fulfill these things for me. But the right viewpoint is, Lord, I have nothing to offer except here I am. Anywhere you want me to go, I'll go. Not a bribery, but an offering of ourselves, laying ourselves at the feet of Jesus. The final viewpoint he had that was wrong was a view of a prayer. And note with me here in the last verse, he goes to Simon and he says, pray to the Lord for me. And I want to be careful when I say this because uh, intercession and the gift of intercession is just that, it's a gift. If you come and ask me to pray for you, I am honored and I will do that for you. And it is a huge blessing for both of us to step into somebody else's life and have the opportunity to pray. It's a wonderful thing. But do you know who God really wants to pray in this relationship? You. He wants to hear from you. It's a personal one-on-one relationship he wants to have with each of you. You think about those of you that have children, how much we want to just hear from our kids. We want to just communicate with our kids. This is the relationship God wants to have with each of you on a personal level. And so he had a wrong view of prayer as well. Now, verse 25, and so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And so we see the continual spread of the word of the Lord, uh, this time through the apostles as they go from place to place to place. An unbelievable revival is now happening in Samaria, which leads us to verse 26. And now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go to the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he arose and went. And so now here, Philip the evangelist has been called to go evangelize. And there's a tremendous revival uh, taking place in an area that originally he wouldn't have really wanted to go in his own flesh if he was being honest with himself. But now there's this unbelievable revival, and what God says is, okay, time to move. Time to move. 
right? Now, how many of you would be excited about this kind of a move? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, Lord, I've got posters printed. I'm supposed to appear at these three different cities. You don't understand what kind of powerful movement's going on. I'm being an evangelist like you called me. I went to a bunch of nobodies, and now you're calling me in the middle of nowhere? I mean, look at what God says. I want you to go to this place. This is the desert. I want you to go in the middle of nowhere. And yet his response is beautiful. At the beginning of verse 27, he arose and he went. He just left. Exactly as the Lord had directed him. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, uh, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then, verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And you see the continual obedience of Philip. He's called away from a bunch of nobodies, now to the middle of nowhere, and here's what the Spirit says. Uh, Go see that moving car? Go chase it down. That's essentially what he was doing with a chariot. Imagine this story. And so Philip goes after this running car, and in verse 30, you, you have to get this in your mind. He's going, do you understand what you are reading? As he's like Forrest Gump running down the street. Here's Philip. And, and then in verse 32, the, the man says, uh, excuse me, in verse uh, 31, he said to him, how can I unless someone guides me? And he said to Philip, come up here and sit with me. So here he is running down the street, huffing and puffing. And thankfully, the guy says, hey, come on up here, stop running. So apparently, we've learned a couple things about uh, Philip. He's an evangelist, and he's got a a quick 40-yard dash. Like he is some kind of fleet of foot guy. He overtakes the chariot. He gets in there, and then in verse uh, 31, he says, and how can I, unless someone guides me, understand this? And so Philip came and sat, and the place in Scripture where he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Verse 34, and so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself? Or of some other man. And then Philip opened his mouth and, and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. And so as this man is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, Philip just began from right there. And what I love about this, he simply preached Jesus. Understand this about this scripture, this word of God, that at any point in time, wherever you want to start, Jesus is on every page. He is everywhere. And when he begins to open your eyes to that, you will literally, as he told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he said, you search and you search the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find eternal life. But the entire book speaks of me. (laughs) I'm on every page in the book. And what I love is that Philip didn't overcomplicate it. He didn't try to explain the hermeneutics or eschatology or get into doctrine. He did was he preached Jesus to him. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. 
in verse 36. And now they went down the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. I want you to understand about this when we look at baptism, um, that this doesn't happen every day. In fact, this is a very eunuch situation. Oh, I mean, come on. It's hard to make a eunuch joke, first of all. Even harder to tie it into the Bible, all right? Eunuch situation. What we see is that this man, this, this eunuch, uh, understood uh, Judaism. In fact, he was most likely a Jew himself. Uh, he had the Jewish religion deep down in his heart. Now, how is it? Time out. How is this guy a Jew? Well, go back to your Old Testament, Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 9. There's another Ethiopian that visits ancient Israel, a lady named the Queen of Sheba. She goes there to visit King Solomon in all of his glory, and she is amazed at all of his wisdom. And so she leaves there, probably with several teachers of Hebrew and of the Jewish religion. She also leaves with a little something extra because uh, Solomon was a bit of a ladies' man. And so she leaves uh, with a baby as well. So this plays out historically because to this day, what you'll see are an entire group of Ethiopian Jews there in Israel. And so they had this Jewish belief. This is the reason the man was going up to the temple to make a payment. He was going up to take his tithes from the Queen Candace at that time of the Ethiopians. And he understood, though, uh, religion and rules. And so he asked Philip, what must I do? What is the thing, the next step that I must take? But look what Philip does. He backs him up, and he says this first. Uh, He says, excuse me. He says uh, in verse 36, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip doesn't give him any more explanation other than to say, if you believe in all your heart, you may. That it all goes back to belief in the heart. Remember the difference between Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's the distance from here to here. If you believe in your heart, you may. And the man answers, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he's formed a baptism there, not for salvation. He'd already had salvation at the point of belief, but it's a way of identification with Jesus. What baptism ultimately is, is an outward sign of an inward change. It's showing the whole world that I am now a follower, a believer of Jesus. And so he's able to participate in this. And then verse 39 Now when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he came in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And so what we see is uh, in the life of Philip, he actually shows up in the book of Acts on three different occasions. In Acts chapter 6, what we find is he is a faithful servant. He's called there just to simply serve the widows there in the early church. But because of his faithfulness to this calling, he is then in chapter 8 where we just covered a fruitful teacher. He's able to now have this fruitful ministry, this evangelism. And yet when we get to the end of our time in Acts, in Acts 21, what we're going to find is he becomes 
a faithful, a, a fulfilled father, excuse me. In fact, in verse 21, he's found still there in Caesarea. And what we're told is that he's raised four virgin daughters who prophesy. His household was one of purity and one of ministry. And I would tell you that I believe in my heart that this was the greatest ministry he had. That being a father to these four young ladies who did not depart from the way of the Lord but continued in ministry was his greatest calling. And so if that's you and you're in this spot where you've got a young family and you don't want your kids to depart from the way of the Lord, here's the key. Here's the key for Philip and the key for us to this day. It's obedience. It's simple obedience. And, and by the way, as Philip was just simply obedient in each step of his life, at no point in time did he know the end of the story. I think that's important to note, that, that God didn't come to Philip and go, all right, Philip, here's the way it's going to go. Uh, first thing, we're going to have you be a faithful servant, and once you're done being a faithful servant, I'm going to pick you up, I'm going to take you down to Samaria, you're going to uh, bring a whole bunch of people to know Jesus, there's going to be a tremendous revival after the tremendous revival, I'm going to call you guys, you're going to speak to an Ethiopian eunuch, he's going to believe in the Lord, he's going to take the Christian uh, faith all the way down to Africa, the entire continent of Africa is now going to become a Christian nation, all because of you, great job, Philip, then I'm going to give you a family with four uh, beautiful girls who are going to prophesy, sound like a great plan, ready, break, on three, didn't happen, would have been nice, right? Would have been wonderful if at any point in time God did that for us, <laughs> that he gave us the end of the story. But the, uh, if he did, we wouldn't continue to be uh, faithful. We would just go on about our merry way. We wouldn't be reliant upon him. This is why scripture says he is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. He is the light that's out there. We can see him. We know that he is going to take care of us for all of eternity. But what does he do for us now in the practical and the daily? He's a, a lamp to my feet. <laughs> I mean, I, I see the end of my feet. That's what I see. It causes us to have to have faith and to have to trust and causes us to just simply obey. This is a story of Philip the evangelist. Simple obedience, doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so, Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the story Philip the evangelist Lord um, at least for me I, I want to tell you I'm sorry for all the times that I have wanted to know the entire story that I have wanted to know every single step of the way that you would have for me that I want to know what the next thing is and the next thing and have it all lined up so I can have it all figured out Lord please help in my life to be more faithful in the daily and in the simple obedience of just doing what you put before me today. Not worrying about tomorrow, just focusing on being your son today. So Lord, please help us to be sons and daughters to simply follow after you, knowing that at the end of the day, you're going to have all this worked out on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Owen begins to play, I want to encourage you guys to Walk forward and just take communion. Uh, you can be seated as you think about your relationship with Christ. And then we'll take communion together as a family.
majesty let all the earth rejoice let all the earth rejoice he wraps himself in light in darkness tries to hide it trembles at his voice it trembles at his voice how great is our God Sing with me How great is our God And oh, we'll see how great How great is our God Age to age he stands in time is in his hands beginning and the end beginning and the end the Godhead three in one the Father, Spirit and Son the Lion and the Lamb the Lion and the Lamb how great is our God Sing with me How great is our God And oh, we'll see How great, how great is our God We'll name above all names is worthy of all peace my heart will sing how great is our God will name above all names he is worthy of all praise my heart will sing how great is our God Cause how great is our God Sing with me how great is our God All will see how great, how great is our God is how great is our God sing with me how great is our God oh see how great how great is our God As the uh, Apostle Paul was addressing the Corinthians who had managed to get communion wrong for a really long time, uh, he said this in chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we, we take this bread symbolizing your body that we are so undeserving of. We are so undeserving of this sacrifice. <clears throat> it can only be explained through your tremendous love for us that you even gave yourself on our behalf. So, Lord, we recognize the sacrifice as we take uh, this time to partake of your body. In Jesus' name. Paul continues saying that in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink it you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and so father we come to you again humbled at the blood that you poured out on our behalf this atonement that was made for us that the one time and all payment that took care of that wiped out all of our sin lord we thank you for this that that practically we are saved for all of eternity positionally we're still working this thing out lord and so until you have finally decided it's time for us to come home or you come back to get us we are going to proclaim the work that you did that day on the cross on our behalf we we proclaim you we thank you we love you and we drink this in honor of you in jesus name amen so what we're told in the new testament was after they had taken the bread and they had drank from the cup they sang a hymn and then they and then they departed and so we are going to rise now and we're going to sing in honor of jesus It's the song of the redeemed Rising from the African plain It's the song of the forgiven Drowning out the Amazon rain The song of Asian believers Filled with God's holy fire It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation A love song born of a grateful choir it's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, he reigns. It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, he reigns. And let it rise above the four winds, caught up in the heavenly sound. Let praises echo from the towers of the cathedrals to the faithful gathered underground. Of all the songs sung from the dawn of creation, some were meant to resist. Of bells rung from a thousand steeples, none ring truer than this. 
It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, He reigns. It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, He reigns. And all the powers of darkness Kimble at what they just heard Because all the powers of darkness Can't drown down a single word When all God's children sing out Glory, glory, hallelujah He reigns, He reigns it's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, He reigns. Let all God's children sing out glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, He reigns. It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns, He reigns. guys for singing. All right. Thank you guys again for coming. Uh, what a wonderful song to end on. He truly does reign. So as we enjoy communion with him, remember that he's already had the victory. You guys are victorious through your belief in Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you guys for coming. If you need prayer at all, I'll be hanging around up front. God bless you.